Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software products inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps podcast. I'm digging back into my uh, my electronics and doing some tedious soldering as I uh, build a little uh, Adafruit uh, featherwing for one of my clients who needs a uh, an automated way to yell at their employees. I mean, uh, when an order comes in, uh, <laughs> they want an announcement broadcast, nice. and uh, so a little little uh, feather uh, from Adafruit with an audio uh, wing attached to it uh, is going to be just just the little thing but uh, I have to have to blow the dust off my soldering skills which is uh, mildly embarrassing so nice uh, Santa m- might be bringing me a new Raspberry Pi um, the new yeah. Raspberry Pi 4 or are you getting yeah. the, new, the new keyboard? The, the new Raspberry Pi 400, the, the, the keyboard. Oh, the, the keyboard, Pi. the 400. Nice. Yeah. Every, every year it seems like I buy, I mean, Santa <clears throat> buys me a Raspberry <laughs> Pi for me to play with. Uh, and, well, I don't uh, know what yeah. those are uh, Canadian. They're about 100, 100 US dollars, so they're probably like 130 or so Canadian. Oh, it's a gift from uh, Santa. I don't know. Oh, how it's a gift from Santa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, uh, it's not a bad deal uh, yeah. for a keyboard. Uh, the full computer, uh, power supply, the whole the whole kit and caboodle there. I mean, I mean, even before Apple made Apple Silicon and their ARM chips like super cool. I mean, uh, the Raspberry Pis have been even from the first version have been doing some amazing things with ar- their ARM chips. Um, and now, I mean, this Raspberry Pi Four, it's it's literally a quad core, sixty four bit processor with four <laughs> gigs of RAM. Right. It can do dual display out, four K video, uh, video playback. It's like I mean, even the Raspberry Pi 1 and 2 and 3 were, I mean, the 3 was, like, amazing. And this 4 is, like, just even crazier, especially now that it's shipping in a keyboard sort of format. Literally, you just plug in, like, a mouse, and you plug it into your TV and power, and boom, you have a computer. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, as you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Raspberry Pi. I use them a lot for uh, digital signage for that. When they added the four gig, and now they have an eight gig option for the Pi Four. That that is, it's an impressive platform. Um, you do need to put some cooling on that. I'm not sure about the keyboard. I'll be interested to see uh, how how cooling affects the keyboard, the 400. But but yeah, definitely for the Pi Fours, you and even the Pi Threes, uh, you want to put a little bit of uh, heat dissipation technology on there, aka aluminum heat sinks uh, and or a fan. I know I know. Uh, for the Pi 4, they, the Raspberry Pi Foundation officially released um, an actual fan that snaps inside the case now, uh, which is kind of cool to see them acknowledge that their stuff runs hot <laughs> and they're not going to get away with like just a little, a yeah. little heat pipe uh, like Apple does. <laughs> I always ran them bare without a case anyway, so um, didn't really ever worry about the heat. Um, but I had the Raspberry, the, the Pi hole was the longest running Raspberry Pi experiment that I did. I ran that for a long time. Um, oh, yeah. Now. Yeah, Pi hole is another great use for the, the Raspberry Pi. I generally have a Synology on the network, so it's easy to run uh, Pi hole on the Synology uh, instead of having a dedicated Raspberry Pi. But and how, are you, how are you running that? Like um, in a Docker? Docker container. Cool, cool. You just run doc- Docker on, uh, on uh, Synology and then add it 
add the container for for PyHole, and it shows up its own uh, IP address, and just set all your DNS to point to that. And bada bing, you're halfway to protecting your network through clean DNS. Yeah, Synology makes some really good NAS uh, products, and uh, I've been happy to see them uh, come out with a lot of units uh, now with uh, NVMe RAM slots, uh, or just like little slots underneath the units, mm-hmm. so you don't have to sacrifice drives. QNAP's always had uh, a little bit more expensive hardware, but always dedicated like SSD or cache slots and everything. But um, and now they're actually shipping um, lots of their units now with built-in NVMe as well as starting to have some 10 gig, more 10 gig options rather than just a card. So getting definitely like pretty powerful, pretty powerful units. Um, yeah. Speaking of Docker, I was reading in the news that uh, Kubernetes wasn't going to support Docker anymore, and people that care about that kind of stuff. Some people were wondering about what's happening, but um, I think the, the too long didn't read is uh, Kubernetes still supporting Docker images, but just not the Docker software per se. So they don't want to have this container D container daemon in the middle of it. So they're just trying to simplify the whole stack. So uh, they've gotten rid of the, the middleware of the, the Docker runner mm-hmm. for that. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what, what's the big news with uh, Amazon uh, this week, uh, JD? So you can you can now purchase on your AWS an instance basically on a Mac Mini. Um, so if you've got uh, a lot of uh, compiling to do that needs to be done uh, in Xcode, you can you can do that from the command line basically. Or if you uh, want to pay a lot of money to have your uh, auto package run. Your line, you can do that too. Or if you want to run your uh, monkey repo on a uh, Apache instance on your Mac Mini for a lot of money, you for can a very <laughs> lot of money. Yes, you can spend nine thousand dollars a year and uh, post it on a Mac Mini and just feel really warm inside that you could have put that on another Linux instance or some other web server somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think a, a Linux instance for the entire month runs maybe $2, uh, <laughs> depending on the volume and, and some other factors. Yeah, but, this is uh, not, a, not a cheap uh, option, <laughs> but for those who are all in on AWS and want uh, you know access to EC2 or AMI images, uh, the whole... The whole AWS shebang, all the different services. Uh, this is an easy way to get a Mac builder, a Mac uh, for 24-hour time period into your CI/CD or Xcode build or iOS testing setup. So, not bad. Yeah, I mean, if you're very heavily invested in in AWS, uh, it probably makes sense. But if you're if you're finding yourself using more than about six days. Uh, so the reason I say days is because uh, Apple's new licensing uh, is essentially that you can you have to license it for 24 hours. Even if you only use it for 10 minutes, you're paying for the, for the entire 24 hours. Yeah, I can only, I can only think now in uh, retrospect a certain uh, uh, comment from Mac Stadium where they were saying how the new licensing terms were a gift to them. Um, mm-hmm. It may seem different in retrospect where it's these license terms are rewritten for everybody, and uh, now Amazon is <laughs> is using this to incorporate Mac building, Mac builds in their uh, in their pipeline. I mean, it had to happen eventually. The flip side of that is, if you really are using more than about six days worth of services from Amazon, you're almost better off uh, looking to Mac Stadium uh, and getting an entire month of service. Uh, and basically just flat out renting one of their yeah. Mac minis. If you're, if you're counting uh, <laughs> your pennies and uh, doing things, uh, yeah, <laughs> doing things a little bit more smartly, uh, 
then that would be a better use of your money. But, you know, like, like you said, you know, if you're, if you're taking advantage of some of the other uh, capabilities of the, the AWS ecosystem, it, it may make more sense for you to, to remain in that ecosystem and, and have access to, you know, your, your various file systems and databases that, that would it, you know, that may exist uh, in the Amazon Web Services umbrella uh, versus having to try and pipeline that and VPN into or, you know, do basically a site to site VPN between an instance that's sitting in in Mac Stadium back to oh. your AWS or, or what have you. I can see why Apple moved so quickly to the M1 chip. They ran out of Intel chips because Amazon bought all the Mac minis that were in stock in the whole world. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. I, I, although the the Intel uh, Mini is still available for sale, which is quite well. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense. There's still a lot of people who who run Windows uh, on those little Mac Minis. It's a highly affordable Windows machine uh, that that's very capable. Uh, the the Intel version of the Mac Mini. So uh, they haven't fully uh, made the transition over to M1 only, which uh, is going to be an interesting transition, really, for the next couple of years. You know, we saw when, for for those of us old enough, like Matt and myself, uh, who saw the the G4 to Intel uh, uh, transition in the laptops and G5 to to Intel in the in the desktops, they pretty much ripped the bandaid off and just said the new things are all Intel and and we're not going to sell the the G4 laptops and we're not going to sell the the G5 desktops. But uh, that's not the case this time around. It's uh, it's a bit better transition. I, I remember. The Intel transition less fondly than other people seem to remember it because uh, we were definitely, I think, the Intel was a good move because they only had G4s in the laptops, but the G5s, the quad G5s that we had in visual effects were very powerful machines. Uh, certainly, we weren't carrying around quad G5 laptops, which was probably the problem. But uh, <laughs> going from a 64-bit G5 uh, computer to a measly 32-bit silly Intel laptop felt like not really an upgrade. So this... This Intel to M1 transition is like, you know, holy smokes fast. I mean, yeah. Mac Mini versus a Mac Pro is still very a silly comparison, and I've seen people benchmarking them, and I think it just highlights how good the Mac Mini is. It's still not going to beat an iMac Pro or a Mac Pro right now, but for the money, um, you can certainly get by with a Mac Mini if you if your needs are, are modest. You know, it's yeah, amazing speed and power on those. It's not like the uh, the Intel 32 bits that we got after the, right. <laughs> that was just sad. Um, yeah, one of the the things that I've I've noticed with Mac OS uh, over the years uh, is that you know they are very graphic dependent uh, for the operating system. A lot of the whiz banging that you see is really the graphics card uh, working. And over the last 10, 15 years, Apple has really struggled in that space to, to get ATI, to get uh, NVIDIA, to, to really do their part in, in creating a, a good, solid uh, graphics processor for them that, that, that Apple can really flex. And I think with the new M1 uh, chip and having that GPU essentially sitting you know, on on the chip and and having direct access to the memory uh, is where a lot of that speed improvement uh, is coming from, and and also that that Apple's now in charge of the GPU design, so there's no more finger pointing, right? <laughs> they 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 design the chip and uh, they have all the nuances uh, 
figured out for that and can take advantage of those uh, those specialties in the, in the GPU itself. Indeed, and uh, there's been uh, some alpha builds of uh, Monkey out for M1, and I know lots of software that doesn't run natively. There, people are working on new versions and beta versions, and uh, um, I think there was a I don't know what the right word is, uh, experimental build of Python uh, built for M1 for mm-hmm. ARM. Um, I think the pieces are, are coming. I mean, my uh, coding uh, friend Christian uh, was was thinking about getting a 16-inch uh, Intel laptop, you know, big screen and stuff. It certainly appealed as secondhand anyway. Sure. And, and I was thinking, well, no, why don't you get like a M1 Mac instead of the speed? But a lot of the data science uh, pieces aren't quite there yet. But I think it only be a matter of time before... You know, all the various dependencies, um, you know, NumPy or whatever, all these other pieces are, are compiled for M1 and ARM. And I think some programs run faster in Rosetta uh, on the M1, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's hilarious and, and funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, part of that is, you know, you have a twofold increase in, in just general speed of the processor and, and capability of the processor, uh, and then take a 20 to 30% hit off of that. So you've doubled the speed, but you've lost 20 to 30%. But that means that you've still gained 20 or 30% capability in that processor. So yeah, it ends up being faster. Uh, the benchmarks have been been pretty impressive, and, and more and more are coming uh, as the days go on. Definitely. All these new uh, platforms, and uh, people were making fun of some of the very silly names of some of them and saying that they were just random names someone saw while walking down the street. But uh, one of them was Amazon Outpost. And basically, you know, someone was saying they were reinventing the uh, local on-prem data center. Literally, you can host Amazon servers on your premises. So they're supplementing their data centers that we all know and love, you know, uh, we see from the outage pages, you know, like uh, on the eastern, eastern. Uh, Still a little bitter about that, huh? Still a little bitter about that. Yeah, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't buy that software that I wanted on Black Friday, you know, all those payment processes went down. But, but basically, yeah, now people are going to be able to host like a rack or a server of Amazon that's managed completely by Amazon, but you're paying the power bill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's yeah, interesting. Like Google, Google sold their own data search uh, servers. Uh, I don't know if they still do that or not, but uh, you could you could literally buy a, a Google search server and put it on your own network and and let it like poke through your your records and it would index them. It felt really just inappropriate and wrong, but. <laughs> Well, you're doing search wrong then, JD. If it <laughs> um, right, make all the documents public and let let Google search it for free. Another uh, service uh, was called Amazon Lookout, and I think this is the one that prompted the uh, what are they walking down the street looking for crazy names? You know, and someone had a sign like a danger sign, Lookout. But uh, Lookout was, um, I think it was like a monitoring solution. But yeah, it's like. You wonder if they're throwing darts at a dartboard to come up with names. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this, looking at the status page for Amazon, you, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of services. Yeah, and there, a lot of them are overlapping and and different uh, in minute ways. And and I I don't spend a lot of time in that that arena. Uh, but yeah, it's <laughs> there's definitely a lot uh, in that that ecosystem. Definitely. I mean, and I was reading more on that uh, big outage that I'm never just going to let go of. Um, <laughs> but they were just saying that, you know, a lot of the services didn't fail completely. So, you know, talking about success. Services, 
Well, the, instead of <laughs> instead of a degrade gracefully kind of thing, it was a degrade sort of half fail. And so nothing failed and failed over. So it was like a lot of different services that kind of half failed, but didn't fail enough to be failed, you know, so... Right. It was it was interesting um, in terms of it was not enough to tip the bucket basically, mm-hmm. and it seemed to be all precipitated by adding storage capacity. So they were adding storage capacity, and somehow that just threw everything off. <laughs> Which also led to some comments in during this Amazon event, were saying that they're now having they they now have persistent storage, or now more no is is persistent storage, but it's also more consistent, and they have these read after writes, sort of like uh, based on like the ZFS. Uh, uh, copy on write, um, but the read uh, read after write. So basically, like a verification after they write it, they make sure they read it back. And people are like, "What? We didn't have this before." <laughs> it <does. laughs> no, nope. it was kind of a crapshoot before. Yeah. Uh, you, you wrote it and you hoped it was there. Yeah, that's that's like the the old days of the the Mac Pros when you had the the RAID card and the battery for the RAID card because that's actually how the RAID card worked in in the old uh, the old Apple Mac Pros that it, it actually verified that it wrote the data before it flushed it out of the cache. And man, those cards would degrade when the battery went south on them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, the whole reading and writing and consistency, uh, just I had this uh, issue today while I was like, uh, the last few days I've been copying many, many terabytes from various uh, uh, external drives um, because now our nice central storage is uh, somewhere in someone's office and not accessible to everybody. There's a lot of storage, external drives being passed around. And we got these really nice uh, four terabyte NVMe external drives, but some people still have bare drives. And so I was acting as kind of like a translation Rosetta Stone uh, outpost. Um, some people had uh, Thunderbolt 3 and some people had Thunderbolt 2. So I basically was like, hey, give me all the stuff. And so I had like uh, this four terabyte NVMe drive plugged in and copying to a uh, USB three three point one uh, dock, but to a, a ten terabyte bare drive, and that was just like the slow end of the stick there, you know, um, right. trying to copy to that. Yeah. But that turned out to be not the weirdest thing. The weirdest thing was that when I looked at which folder they wanted me to copy, they were like, "Oh yeah, it's this uh, four and a half terabyte folder," and I'm like, "Oh okay." I'm like, "Check, yeah." Finder says it's four and a half terabytes. I'm like, "Hey, wait a minute." This drive only is only four terabytes. How is this folder four and a half terabytes? And so that led me down like a really like wild goose chase of trying to figure out. I mean, I used Hedge, my favorite card copy software for camera cards, because it does hashes and verifications. And, you know, after it writes, it verifies and has hashes. It does it does three ways sort of like checks. Um, but yeah, it said, yeah, it, the four and a half terabytes that you had is the four and a half terabytes you have on the on the destination. And but I was like, this is really strange because when I was looking in terminal, I checked with DU, I checked the, with blocks, how many blocks, I checked with how many bytes, how many gigabytes, like, and I, I was looking at the math in terabytes and tebibytes, uh, there's different, you know, but it was very strange. And I think it, it all came down to, I mean, this, <laughs> looking in terminal, this uh, four terabyte SSD reported that it had 3.8 terabytes total capacity and that this folder was only three and a half terabytes, not four and a half. But I think there's just some kind of weird voodoo, and I hope we find out the answer one day. But there's a weird voodoo with the SSD where it's managing like the directory structure and where how it's cop- keeping copies or like kind of ghost copies of, of files because um, I couldn't figure out where the discrepancy was. There wasn't any, uh, and I'm terrible at math. It wasn't a, a math error, which would have been the most likely explanation, or I was using the wrong units uh, to count up the data. But 
very strange when someone says, hey, copy that four and a half terabyte folder that's on my four terabyte drive. <laughs> and then the finder's <laughs> like, yep, it's four and a half terabytes. I'm like, how? How is it four and a half terabytes? Like, I just, something with the SSD trim or the way it's cleaning up the, the SSD. Um, I don't know. Like, yeah. So, yeah, nobody, nobody should trust uh, their SSDs or NVMe uh, storage, flash storage as being perfect. And uh, yeah, don't trust anything. I think that's true of all storage is, you know, that that countdown at the bottom of your your finder window is not accurate. Uh, and we, we find this all the time, especially those who have iCloud Drive turned on. Uh, the that for some reason Apple loves to fill the hard drive up to ninety five percent capacity and then uh, magically flag files for deletion to to make room on the fly and it just feels like it's a bad way to manage especially solid state storage uh, when you ha- when you're using it also for swap right for memory swap uh, you're just you're just basically burning a hole uh, in the same area of the SSD by by not having some room to, to spread out your, your data. Yeah. I've been, um, getting my clients and, uh, and I also use like a, a small SSD plugged in even through USB three and just use that as a cache drive for funnel cut and for like post lab drive. So mm-hmm. post lab, like it doesn't grab, it doesn't uh, copy everything from the cloud uh, remotely. It just grabs the bits and the pieces of the files. But instead of having that writing back and forth all the time on your internal storage, uh, just have it written to a, a you know a temporary throwaway SSD cache drive um, that you you know you can replace easily. Um, so it's one of these wizard things that we do to make things better. But I don't know if it's actually making things better, but it kind of makes me feel better. <laughs> if it, if it makes you feel better, yeah. yeah, you know. <laughs> Use this cache drive. Make sure you hold it with two hands and uh, point towards north. Um, Perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, man. Speaking of weird, wacky troubleshooting, and nobody really was, but I was. Um, I've been troubleshooting <laughs> this weird thing with this iMac Pro, where it kept crashing every time we'd output from Final Cut. Not output as in uh, export a file, but just plug into uh, an HDMI display and then just say AV out, just so it play out on the TV. And couldn't figure it out. It was so weird. Like, same project would work fine on another iMac Pro. Um, we'd plug into um, another TV. It seemed to be fine, but it was weird. But it, it turned out, like, uh, just before we wiped the whole machine and just started <laughs> fresh, I was like, just try another user account. Yeah, sure enough. Yeah, it's like, no problems. <laughs> so some kind of, like, really weird, like, plug-in or file is just corrupting um, file cut. Um and crashing the machine so yeah i'm you know every now and then you just got to do a fresh install of a machine you shouldn't let that thing uh, clutter up forever and ever and ever but uh, i don't well sh- i mean i i i beg to differ but uh <laughs> you know the the split <laughs> the half split search method of isolating problems is always a, a good uh, reminder you know to to isolate you know is this a system-wide issue is this mm-hmm. a user-specific issue uh, and, and Apple is changing how you do some of that now with the M1 Max and, uh, and oh, the magic yeah. for long press and hold on the power button to get into uh, diagnostic mode now and, and things like that. So, yeah, I saw on Twitter there was a lot of uh, very interesting Twitter threads. Uh, Howard Oakley, Tim Perfett, and a bunch of others are having many issues uh, restoring their Macs um, with personalization errors and. I think uh, the early builds of macOS 11 uh, were very problematic, and uh, I think the advice to everyone is to update your uh, early macOS uh, builds uh, quickly to 11 uh, 
a one. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still a struggle to say Mac OS 11. Point yeah. zero point one point three point one four five four six you notice that the version number is pi yes the, uh, steve steve Heyman uh, when you need him um the ultimate super canadian uh and canadian football fan but also someone who knows pi to like i don't know a thousand places or something but go steve did you buy anything in black friday uh cyber monday whatever <laughs> uh, I, I finally broke down and, and uh, purchased a, uh, a Mac Mini. Uh, it might ship sometime in January. Apple <laughs> is, is so backlogged. Apparently, if you uh, want to pay full price, you can walk into a store right now uh, and have that Mac Mini today. But uh, if you don't want to pay full price, uh, you, you get to stand in line. And, and I chose to save 10%. Uh, and uh, so apparently I'm standing in line, but I'm also uh, still shopping for a T7 drive, uh, Samsung, uh, the T7, probably the two terabyte size uh, external uh, USB 3.2 uh, super fast drive to basically plug into that because I'm unwilling to pay Apple for their golden storage pricing. Uh, and that two terabyte drive generally is about the cost of of just bumping up to the 512 uh, internal. So <laughs> it's so little. They're charging uh, just too high of a premium for me. Yeah, I think it's good to have external drives. They come in handy. Uh, I picked up uh, some of those T5s and T7s uh, for clients. And they're really nice and small. And you can Velcro them to the top case to your lid of your laptop right. or just carry them in your bag easily. Not much bigger than those uh, USB thumb drives or you know, that people carry around still. But yeah, with one, two or more terabytes, you know, they're amazing. I, I think it's also amazing that binning platter drive that holds 10 terabytes. I mean, that's a lot of eggs in one little basket. Uh, those yeah. helium drives are, are pretty spectacular, but whew. It's a lot of data in one one small location. Yeah, and and it's it, it's worse. You know, this is an Iron Wolf uh, NAS drive, and usually use them in in, in some of these small NASs <laughs> that have like you know eight drives, and so you have eight times ten terabytes, and so uh, yeah, rebuilding a, a a RAID five or RAID six set, you know, with ten terabyte drives, that could take forever. Uh, so uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, RAID is not a backup. RAID does not stand for this isn't a backup. It's not a backup. It is a one version of your your data. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, these ten terabytes we've been using them as like a pass along drive for an extra copy of footage um, when like the colorist the color grader needs a copy, and so it's never one the only copy. We always use something like Hedge, which always has like a multiple source, multiple destination sort of. Um, workflow so you make multiple copies and everything is hash checked and verified and so you're not making bad copies yeah it took 16 hours to copy to this 10 terabyte drive because slow uh, one single bear drive boo <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, i've seen a couple of people uh you know uh, complain about restoring from a usb a time machine they're like time machine is so slow i'm like uh you backed up to a very very slow single bear drive uh yeah that's gonna be slow sorry if you buy an expensive fast usb3 uh, you know samsung uh, t5 or some nvme drive or something that might be a little faster on restore it's also an expensive backup but when you do need it it will be slow <laughs>
Yeah, I was going to say it's just like cloud backup, right? You're filling up that uh, backup a teaspoon at a time, but expecting to download it, you know, via a fire hose. And that's just not generally going to happen that way. Same thing with uh, an external spinning platter drive. Yeah, the only people I've seen like sort of crack that egg are uh, company LucidLink, and that's who PostLab uses. Um, they have some really cool technology to, to stream the bits of the files that you need, so it does uh, appear faster. I think in some ways it is faster when you can start like scrubbing back your video without having to download the entire stuff of you know whole entire file. Right. So um, some people are using that successfully for sort of like a video workflow where they just want to start playing a video and. They don't need the entire file downloaded, so um, it's definitely a, a way around that. But yeah, you're if you're on Wi-Fi and you have terrible home Wi-Fi or asynchronous Wi-Fi, uh, we used to laugh at uh, ADSL being asynchronous and cable modems being faster. But now I've seen more phone companies with the fiber uh, optics that are more synchronous than the cable companies with their Doxis format that has uh, asynchronous, like your upload is super small and upload is you talking back to the server that you need to talk to. So Yeah, I mean, you're, you're essentially uh, on a cable connection through Doxis. You're, you're broadcasting your own TV signal back upstream and it's kind of like shouting into uh, a crowd, right? They're not going to hear you, not without some amplification at least. Yeah. Been a little more impressed with the fiber offerings in our area anyway. They're synchronous rather than the cable modem stuff that's asynchronous. So I'm not pushing a lot of data, but it's I find that the responsiveness and the latency is a lot more quick when you're doing VPN, SSH, uh, screen sharing. Uh, you know, been using that Tailscale uh, WireGuard uh, mesh VPN software, and that's working really nice to connect to a lot of remote uh, hardware. So and everybody's at home working at home. So. <laughs> the better we're connected, the better it is for everyone, right? Yep, and doing so securely is always beneficial. Yes, 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 yes. I had some troubleshooting uh, help that I had to give to some people that were trying to use time machine drives and external drives, but if they weren't formatting them properly, they couldn't encrypt them. And so you have to make sure that you wipe the drives completely and wipe the uh, master boot record off and get a GPT header on those drives so that you can... Uh, put that uh, APFS core storage volume on there. So um, that, that that's you may not know, know what all that means, but <laughs> I think it comes up just when you go to disk utility and try and you know, or you try and encrypt the the, the your external drive. And if it doesn't encrypt, then you've got it in the wrong format. You've got to wipe it again. So a little tip. <laughs> Ian Coldwater, I think he works for Google Project Zero, maybe, but he just saying through a radio frequency, you could basically hack and force reboot, crash any Mac within. A certain uh, proximity, which I mean, it sounds crazy, magical, and outlandish, but uh, I mean, it's just a—I'll a, say just—it's <laughs> just a simple extrapolation from the normal, you know, buffer overflow. Uh, give something something that's an unexpected issue that seems to be the way that hackers, clever hackers, find ways to crash browsers and gain exploits, and basically sanitizing your inputs. So he's he's found a way to uh, shove some data. That is not unexpected and therefore causes unexpected uh, results. So uh, Yeah, so it looks like he's uh, taking over a component called AWDL, uh, which is uh, basically what Apple uses for uh, peer-to-peer communication to iOS devices or what we know as AirDrop and handoff. Um, and it basically is just a large attack surface that uh, any anything in radio range uh, basically he's using a little raspberry pi and some uh, wi-fi antennas 
uh, can basically gain access to your your device and and uh, scrub the memory off of it and pull photos and messages and you name it uh, off of there. So uh, I certainly hope that uh, he uh, gave Apple some some heads up on this before he published. I'm sure he did. Uh, most I'm, of the I'm secu- sure mo- mo- most of the security guys tend to give Apple uh, heads up. It's just uh, that their arrogance tends to get the best of them. The uh, corporations or the, the corporations. <laughs> yeah. The, the arrogance of the, uh, the corporations tend to be like, ah, you, this isn't serious. This isn't a, wouldn't affect anybody. And, and, you know, most of the white hat uh, hackers out there pretty lenient and they're like as long as you communicate with me i'm not going to put this out here but if you're going to go you know silent on me or ignore me you know eventually i'm i'm going to put it out there and i that that's happened to apple a couple of times and magically we get you know what are considered zero day exploits but aren't uh you know they've been out there for a while uh but if some uh, person can think of it i think it's what we have to on the one hand, I always think, oh, why did this person publish this exploit and give proof of concept code and make it easy for anyone to exploit? And on the other hand, I think, oh, well, if someone's thought of it, someone else has thought of it and not telling anybody about it. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, presumably a nation state's already using something like this or somebody well that's well-funded um, is going to be using this already. So getting yeah, the, it out the, there. The scary thing about this, unlike a lot of the other exploits that, that generally require physical access to the machine, um, this is one that can be done from afar. You know, if you have a Yagi antenna that you can you can direct at a device, you can literally fly over a crowd of people and and collect all of the data off of the phones, which is a little a little unnerving. Bad actors and bad state actors, you know, could could use this uh, against their people, and that's not that's no bueno. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, I mean, part of like sort of operational security or. Uh, you know, when you you sit through a nice, uh, you know, uh, infosec session and you get your levels of paranoia up uh, really well, you know, or you, uh, you've you cruised the Mac Forensics blog, you know, and uh, seen some good talks on forensics and you see all the data that can be mined from devices. Um, but I've, I've always been in the habit of turning off my uh, Wi-Fi when I leave the house. And one of the reasons is just like battery runs out if it's if you're if your phone is constantly trying to connect to every single Wi-Fi hotspot, I mean, that's either seen as a good thing, like, hey, I can just grab Wi-Fi where I need to. On the other hand, you're collecting a log of all the Wi-Fi hotspots your phone has ever seen right. and therefore leaving traces. Um, and also, you know, you're communicating information. I mean, I use an Apple Watch, so my Bluetooth is on. But that's also, you know, your Bluetooth is on and broadcasting information about your device. Um, um, I've also got the COVID app, uh, you know, which is using like a Bluetooth and proximity sensors to sort of, you know, collect information about people you may be near nearby. So that's a good use of that technology. But, you know, you have to uh, balance these technologies. And uh, yeah, I turn off Wi-Fi, but it's another antenna. You know, and also you set your airdrop to either completely off or contacts only, but I think completely off is usually the safest option, right? You know. Yeah, generally I, I have mine set to completely off. Uh, that was back, back pre-pandemic uh, times. Uh, one of my favorite things to do was to sit on airplanes and airdrop random images to people uh, who had their airdrop <laughs> on and open. So Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd publicly say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we want to send a sincere thanks to all the uh, good people out there working really hard to find the exploits and the bugs and to help the corporations and the vendors of our products to improve and um, help us uh, improve the software and make it better. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> if you want to sponsor the Mac DevOps podcast, uh, just give us a shout at hello at mdoyvr.com. We'll be accepting sponsorships for the podcast and for the next year's conference. Thank you to our Mac DevOps YVR 2020 sponsors. Our sponsors for Mac DevOps YVR, the conference 2020. Mac Stadium, our platinum sponsor, thank you so much for helping us out. Sauce Labs, our gold sponsor. Simple MDM, our silver sponsor. And Adigy, our bronze sponsor, as well as Elastic, our community sponsor. Thank you so much. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Mac DevOps podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to our co-hosts. Today's episode was edited by J.D. Strong. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. So you're not going to say that line for me again? I don't know what I said. <laughs> you don't know what you said. <laughs>